This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Today on Office Hours, we have a very special guest. We're talking with the Reverend Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, Senior Minister at First Presbyterian Church, Columbia, South Carolina. He's a husband, a father, and a grandfather, in addition to being a minister. He's also a professor of systematic theology at Redeemer Theological Seminary in Dallas and has been such at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He is the author of two dozen books, so we won't name them all, but most recent of them is By Grace Alone, and you'll also want to look for In Christ Alone, Reflections on the Gospel-Centered Life. He's written volumes such as The Children of the Living God, Delighting in the Father's Love, Deserted by God, John Owen on the Christian Life, The Holy Spirit in the InterVarsity Contours series, and he's co-author with Mark Dever of A Study of the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, which everyone should get and read. You can see all these titles. They're all available in uh, the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. <laughs> that's, our, that's our plug bell at wscal.edu. Hi, Sinclair, and welcome Thank to Thank you, Scott. It's a delight to be here. Do you like the plug bell? It's one spectacular. I can it's do really, that. It's modern and efficient and simple. That's great. <laughs> it was $4 at, uh, at Office Depot, so <laughs> I, lo- I love that. All right. Good. Well, welcome to Westminster Seminary, California. You've been here before. You're an old friend of the uh, campus and school, and you've taught here. And so we're thrilled to have you back for Thank this you. week of lectures under the uh, heading of the Dendulk Lectures, which is, a, which is focusing on pastoral ministry. So that's what we want to talk about. Why did you become a pastor. Let's start there. Well, Scott, I think as you know, I wasn't brought up in a Christian home. I was sent to Sunday school when I was a little boy, early 1950s, when that was regarded as a probably part of a de- decent Scottish upbringing. And then I was converted when I was 14. And I think probably within the next 18 months, I had a, I'd really a very strong sense of call to the ministry, which happened in a very strange way. I overheard a conversation with one of my closest friends And somebody was asking him what he was going to do with his life. He said, uh, I'm going to become a minister. And I think that moment was as though all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of my future fitted together. And I thought, I think that's it. And to tell the truth, I have never stepped back from that. When I was, I guess I was 15, 16 at the time, I didn't know anybody in my family who'd been to university. And so the first hurdle was how do I get into one of these places and what do I do? Mm. And really, so since 1516, that is the only thing I've ever felt I should do with my life or wanted to do with my life. And in some ways, while theological education has always been a burden to me, partly because my own theological education was very mixed, a lot of it was very liberal. I, I never really wanted to go into theological education. What, I, what I've always had a real desire for is pastoral ministry. And so that really is the short story of my life. You've anticipated my second question. Hmm. You're a, so you're a pastor who teaches theology sometimes. Yes, I think I am now. I, I, I went through college and then seminary, And I guess through seminary, you know, everybody who knew me said, you'll just end up teaching in a seminary, which probably hardened my stubborn Scottish resolve never to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
But I was ordained when I was 23. Mm. I'd finished my theological studies. And within a couple of years, I really felt I needed to focus my study better. Not because I, I thought of a PhD doing anything. I just thought I need to find a way in which I engage in more concentrated study that will give me more depth for ministry. I remember somebody writing about Calvin, that the reason he became a theologian was to be a better pastor. And when I read that, I thought, that's it. That's, that well describes what I want. And so I, I did my PhD without any thought about it being a ticket to do anything. And, you know, in the providence of God, one thing led to another, and I ended up teaching at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia in 1983. But all the time I was there, I guess I felt the tension between teaching and where my heart is. Mm. Um, and then when, of course, what happens then is when you're in the church, you still have this sense of, what am I doing for the future ministry? And now that I'm in Colombia, when the church came to me in Colombia, they they uh, when they were wanting me to go, I said I can't leave the seminary. I was teaching in Dallas at that time, when Redeemer was still a plant of Westminster in Philadelphia. I said it's too it's too much of a baby for me just to get up and go. And they said, well, would you would you consider living somewhere else? And if we can work it out with the seminary that you can continue teaching, uh, let's see if we can do that. And that was such an unusual thing for a congregation to say that to me. Other congregations had come and I think definitely didn't want me to have any contact with seminary. And so one thing led to another. So the present situation, which makes for a very busy life, for me is personally the perfect balance and enjoy it very much indeed. You've gotten to know the staff of American Airlines Fairly. Yeah, I recognize the the flight attendants pretty well. Um, and so happens, two weeks before we went to Colombia, American put on a direct flight between Colombia and DFW. That served me well now for four and a half years. How was it, or what effect did it have on you as a pastor to come face-to-face with John Owen and to get to know him as intimately as you did in your doctoral work? Yeah, I had, um, I remember, you know, doctoral work in Europe, but certainly in Scotland, was purely research. And when I wrote to my dogmatics professor saying I thought I should do more work, he said, well, uh, come and see me. I'm very pleased you want to do this. Come and see me and bring three or four topics that you would like to work on. And I still remember three of the four topics that I brought. And he said, well, what do you really want to do? And for some reason or another, I thought actually the most challenging to do would be the Owen. And that was what I landed on. But I'd been reading Owen since I was about 18, I think, maybe even earlier, possibly when I was 17, I got my first volume of Owen. Do you remember what it was? Um, Do I remember what it was? I think it was volume three on the Holy Spirit. So I had found him so personally beneficial that particularly since I I wasn't doing this for any, I wasn't doing this as a ticket. Mm -hmm. I was just doing this really to, to try and grow as a young Christian thinker. He really was a great person to study because he touches on so many things. And the more I read him, the more, you know, the more impressed I was by him. And the more more impressed I became by the things people didn't tend to read in Owen, 
you know, when I was, we're talking about, we're talking 1970s now and early 1970s, the books of Owen that people read tended to be The Death of Death and The Death of Christ because it was such a young man's book, you know, yeah. slay the Arminians yeah. kind of book. Or The Mortification of Sin, Sin yeah, which was one. slay your own Arminian, really. <laughs> but then I discovered what lay beneath those, his work on the Trinity and his work on Christology. So it was a very, very enriching thing for me to study Owen. And interestingly, the book on Owen kind of emerged from those studies. But it was, strangely enough, well, interestingly enough, it was part and parcel of my pastoral concern because I think I'd come to see that just as in the body of Christ generally, there's a variety of gifts. I'd noticed the same was true of ministers. And I think I wanted to have some gift I could give to my fellow ministers and say, the Lord's given me this for you. So as well as doing the study for myself, I wanted to have something, you know, as an end result that I could give to others who might have Owen on their shelves but didn't have time to read Owen. This might seem like a strange question, but were you disappointed at all in anything that you read in Owen? When someone whom you admire and from whom you've learned becomes the subject of academic work, it becomes a little more human, frail, and maybe maybe the 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 shine comes off. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say the shine came off Owen because he's actually quite difficult to get to know, very reserved, mm. says very little in 24 volumes, says very little about himself. Mm. And even his letters do not disclose a great deal. They're not like Samuel Rutherford's letters, for mm. example. You know, there's Owen is never all out there. You get occasional references like he... You can see him smiling when he's speaking about his son eating the fruit from the orchard and things like that. At two points in his life, when he was a young man, he went through a long period of either not really knowing he was a Christian or just a great lack of assurance. And then later in life, it looks to me as though he went through a period of some melancholy as well because his writing dipped and then revived again. And it would be really interesting to have known, if it were possible, more about those stages in his life and catch the kind of personality he was. Because a guy who writes 24 volumes of 600 pages, <laughs> yeah. presumably with pen and ink, I mean, there's no indication that he had secretaries, you know, like Thomas Aquinas apparently had five secretaries working for him. So how he did all that is just extraordinary. There are hints about his his life as a young man, for example, at Oxford. He was said to have gone around in Quirpo. Yes. In uh, yeah. with the with the high boots, yes. an open the, shirt. That's right. Uh, yeah. a, a feather in the yes. cap. He's yeah. something of a hippie in this. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's in one or two of the biographies and um I have sometimes wondered whether he he seems to have done this later in life, for example, mm. he wouldn't take his hat off during the Lord's Prayer or something like that, that there was a there was an, an element in him that was really saying to the non-Puritan party, don't think Puritans can be put into a box mm. and that we don't have fun. The other thing is he married money and also he when he was vice-chancellor of Oxford under Cromwell, the salary he was supposed to be paid was a king's ransom. It was it was a fabulous amount of money. And when he died, I think there were probably about 4,000 books in his library, 
which you know for somebody in the 17th century it's unthinkable was really so he did he was a snappy dresser and I think could afford to be, yeah, he's <laughs> and the, was. The original young, restless, and reformed <laughs> yeah. fellow, yes. <laughs> yeah, in many ways, yeah, yeah. All right, let's go back to pastoral ministry. Here's a very basic question, but maybe a difficult question. What is a pastor? How do you know one when you see one? <laughs> well, he dresses like John Owen, obviously, <laughs> is the answer. Um, well, yeah, I think you recognize one in the sense of a real one by by shepherdly disposition. What do you mean? I mean care for the flock that understands to some degree what the flock needs, how it needs to be fed. So I think it's a mixture of desire to serve, recognition of needs, and the the requisite gifts to be able to meet those needs. And those requisite gifts are really not very readily measured, which I think may be why some men struggle with the whole question of a call to the ministry because they don't know whether they've got the gifts or not. And why, to me anyway, although I think my first sense of call to the ministry was what one might call a very individual thing, I'm pretty sure I would never have made it through without the encouragement, the recognition of the Christians who were around me, giving me opportunity to develop the gift they saw I had and confirming it to me because I was very, I was I was very shy. I still find speaking much more difficult than other means of communication. So I needed a lot of help, or that's perhaps not the best way to describe what happened. I was given a lot of help hmm. by people who maybe even didn't realise that they were functioning as the church surrounding me and encouraging me on, and that's been a you know and praying for me. Uh, it's been a wonderful thing, really. And I think it's still true. I mean, I'm in a situation where I often think I probably get more encouragement than 99.99% of ministers. And when that's the case, you almost don't notice the extent to which you're dependent on it. But it's a very real thing to me, and I feel that in preaching as well. People are, are grateful for what they hear preached. They don't know. I, and often I can understand why they don't understand but they don't know the extent to which they themselves are part of the cause of the, the way I'm able to feed them. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking with Sinclair Ferguson. And when we come back after this break, I have a difficult question for him about the nature of the ministry as it exists today. Is the pastoral ministry in crisis? And we'll get to that right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresson Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So, Sinclair, is pastoral ministry, the ministry, is it in crisis? And if so, how would we know? Well, that is a difficult question, uh, Scott. Um, I I don't know whether I would say it's in crisis, because I'm not sure of the antennae to measure the generality of what's going on in the ministry. 
But I, th I do think there has been a huge shift, even in my lifetime, in how people think about the ministry and in how ministers function. And for example, if I were in my position in our church today, you know, 30 years ago when I was younger, I think I would have found it very difficult to handle the kind of office-centeredness of the ministry. What do you mean by that? I mean that one of the things I think has happened in almost all churches is the church has become multi-programmed. The net effect of that is that either the central things have tended to be minimized or they're actually very difficult to replace in the church because so much is going on. And when that happens, the minister or ministers more and more tend to become managers of the organization than mm. pastors of the flock. You know, the old style of ministry was nobody dared disturb the minister before one o'clock in the afternoon, at the very earliest. Um, <laughs> I laugh because I, I think, wow, what? how could we get back to that? Yeah, not because he's still in bed, but because he's he has been up with the workmen in the morning, studying, yeah. praying, preparing. In a study, not an office. That's right. And not just preparing sermons, but really studying, growing. Whereas now, very much in many churches, the ministers, you know, people expect that he'll be in his office. They can phone him at any time, um, come and see him. And there was always an aspect of that. But the amount of administration that goes on is, you know, huge now by comparison because there are so many things happening. And I think it's it's very... I don't think the ministry can return to the strength of character it once had without the church going through something of a metamorphosis back to a simpler way of, of doing church, to the extent now that I find what earlier generations of Christians were able to do. Either they need the church to provide the wherewithal to do it, whatever that may be, or, for example, I mean, I've found increasingly, I think, in the last decade that when people are meeting for small group Bible study, in essence, they're studying somebody else's study. You know, what's the, is there a textbook for this Bible study? And it's almost as though, well, we're not able to study the Bible ourselves. If the ministry of the Word isn't actually enabling them to do that, mm. then something, I think, has gone fairly seriously wrong. How do we begin to deprogram the church and return it back to a simpler form? Yes. Well, I think there are probably several ways. One is by planting new churches hmm. that have, have have that simplicity in their DNA to begin with. Another is trying to raise the profile of the things that really are central and trying to do it without causing explosions in the process. You know, nobody wants the peace and unity of the church disrupted. It's difficult because every pastor will tell you the first thing that a family is likely to ask when they enter a congregation is, do you have this yes. program? Do you yes. have that program? And it creates a culture, a demand, a market, a climate. And, and then to look at them and say, well, we don't do that. And then the next thing you think is, well, we'll never see that family again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to begin to deprogram the church is to ask pastors to 
put themselves and, and in some respects, their congregations or what they perceive as their ministry at risk. Yes. You know, there are various ways of, of I think, trying to analyze this problem. I think the situation has now got to a stage where people don't have, often people, their taste buds have been destroyed. They've been eating chocolate between meals. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I think it's very much harder for men to establish taste for the right things and the central things. And I, I think one of the things I find too is that the net effect of that is the church has ceased to be God's evangelistic agency. And so people are involved in all other kinds of things that draw energy from the church rather than put energy into the church. And for example, in a church like ours, which is we've about 2,500 members, I think it's a matter of seeking to to build in the importance of worship and prayer, the importance of the ministry of the Word. And I think in many churches like ours, the so-called senior minister is supposed to preach in the morning and he's not supposed to preach at night. And I felt but that, not because I'm, you know, neurotic about being the preacher all the time, but I felt that gives such signals to people that the evening service isn't really as important as the morning service. Well, God bless you for having you an know. evening service, yeah. because they're they're increasingly difficult yes. to find. Well, I've, I've, um, I believe in evening worship almost as much as I believe in anything, really. I, I, Why is that? Explain that, because I can imagine a listener thinking, well, we, we don't have an evening service, and you know, we used to have a Bible study, but that sort of faded away, and evidently our congregation doesn't think it's very important. So why does Ferguson think it's so important? Yeah, I think it's important because I feel for—we have two morning services. I feel after the first of them, my face has been washed. After the second, I feel I've probably um, had a shower, <laughs> and I'm really ready, you know, for worship. I do believe— that there is an, a kind of accumulation of blessing in the fact that God has given us this day. And I I don't actually, you know, maybe this isn't a fair judgment, Scott, but I'd be surprised if most Christians use the rest of the day very well spiritually. I think the church needs to give them a climax, a telos, in the day. And we've worked hard at that in our church and our evening service. I mean, the church is full now in evening service. And it is almost one, it's a glorious way to end the the Lord's Day. You know, it's built right into the creation narrative, morning and evening. It's built into the whole sacrificial system. It's built into the whole history of the yes, Christian church. Yes. The notion that you could, you know, begin the Lord's Day, the Sabbath even, if we can say the S word, uh, with... Um, Worship, but not end it with with worship. You know, it, uh, uh, vespers and mat- matins and vespers. F- you know, for thousands of years, only very recently could you find people who would think it surprising that you yes. shouldn't end the Lord's yes. Day. And to see the Lord's people yeah. together at the end of the day in a more relaxed atmosphere. You're not worrying whether the chicken's burning in the oven or that kind of thing. It's really it's a it's a very. I just wouldn't be without it. It's a thing of great beauty. and um, I think it's also easier for people to invite friends to it. It's a little more instructional. You mentioned, you know, the stages of blessing in a sense, or maybe stages is, is not the right noun, but the accumulation of blessing yes. is your expression. How do pastors 
find a way to think about all the things they think about during worship and leading a, a, a service and still worship. Because that's one of the most difficult things I think maybe pastors face. Yes. I think that that's a challenge for a younger man, probably, who's, who is kind of concerned about doing it. Um, I, think as, I think as men grow, I would put it like this. When you stand up in front of a congregation, first of all, you think everybody's looking at you. But then there comes a transition where what you think you're doing is looking at them there comes a point at which when you're leading them in prayer, you are going to the throne of God, and that's the thing of which you're most conscious. And when you're, when you're preaching the Word, to me, you know, really a big help to me has been the sense that I'm as much under that ministry as everybody else. So I, I do think it's something that, you know, men, generally speaking, do grow into, and they, they lose self-consciousness in it because they're focused on that they themselves should be able to worship the Lord. And we very regularly, our prayer, we've several, we've six ministers before we go into the services, that each of us will become less conscious of the thing that we've got to do and more conscious of the Lord's presence that we'll be helped to worship him ourselves. You have shepherded uh, two sizable established, prominent congregations. And I don't know about your very first congregation, what the nature of that was, but but you've been in two of these now, uh, and most pastors in their career will never pastor congregations like that. Most congregations in North America, anyway, are 200 or less, and most of those are 100. Mm-hmm. So the, a pastor is listening to you, and he's saying, okay, Ferguson, you have six people that you work with you on your staff. I, I mow the lawn. I wash the. the yeah, I, I clean yeah. the, the washroom. Yes. What What do you say to someone who is in a situation that's that I just described that, that will never be in your your situation? Yes. Uh, don't envy me. <laughs> um, Which I think is very important because you know, that's I, a temptation. That I think it can, and I understand. I and I see it as a temptation. Because from the outside, there seem to be so many blessings. And to be honest, there are. And I mean, I'm conscious that from one point of view, I'm in a situation of great luxury because I've, I've, I've colleagues, you know, we uphold one another. The other way around is, I think, that those are the men I admire. You know, I'm where I am in this kind of situation by divine happenstance. You know, God sets us down where he wants us to be, and we, uh, I mean, the old adage that it's not success but faithfulness that pleases him is something um, that causes me admiration for other men. For example, I have never had a really long ministry, Scott, so I have a great admiration for those who have accomplished what, humanly speaking, I've never accomplished, albeit that, you know, I think that's been the providence of God in my life which is why I feel I need men like that to be, uh, you know, bonded together in fellowship. And you know, most, of, most of my really close friends are not ministers of large congregations. And I have, those are the ones from whom I learn. Well, Sinclair, thank you so much well, for this time. Well, very quickly. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.